The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for tuning in and being part of the show. The show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And, of course, one of the ways the world really works, in fact, all the ways the world really works, uh, involve me telling you things that are entirely different from the things that are being said and the things that are being written popularly out there. And uh, it is not for the purpose of being iconoclastic or, or shocking or politically incorrect. It's simply a case of me having zero value to you if I am not telling you the truth about how the world really works. And I was watching the erection of a tower crane on a building site recently this last week. And... Um, I, I find those things absolutely fascinating. Uh, these tower cranes, as you know, these huge, slender-looking towers that look improbably balanced against the, the forces of wind and weather, and uh, they have these uh, huge jibs extending outwards, and little by little, as a building rises, the, the, the tower crane rises with it. And, uh, and there are two types of tower cranes. One is erected by means of a second crane that hoists the sections of the tower crane into place. And the other one is even more interesting, and this is the one I really enjoy watching, and that is where the tower crane grows itself. Uh, the, the crane hoists up a section uh, that is going to be the next section of the tower. It looks like, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 feet long. And uh, meanwhile jacks hoist up the tower until there's a gap of exactly the size that'll fit the new incoming piece. And uh, voila, the, the tower is now 15 or 20 feet higher, and so it grows. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Because um, as I watch the site, and there, there are a lot of people at work, right? people involved trucks bringing construction material, people pouring concrete, people setting forms and reinforcing. And um, i got to tell you, I not only looked, but I actually asked, because I wanted to be able to speak about this on the show, uh, were there any women working on the site? And again, if you have anything of a clue about how the world really works, then you know the answer already. No, there were no women working on this particular construction site or the other one that I happened to uh, stop and watch as well. Uh, why? It's perfectly obvious, right? You, you don't need me to tell you that. And as a matter of fact, uh, there is a feminist woman professor uh, in Philadelphia called Camille Puglia, uh, whom I have not met, but I am. I'm, I think I'm really going to try to. I find her extraordinarily impressive. Uh, she she says she is a feminist. She's a woman, but in one of her recent books, she has a passage that I marked, in which she said that uh, if women were in charge of civilization, we would all still be living in grass huts. Now this sounds, does it not, as if today's show is going to be a hate-on-women show, right? Well, you know me better than that. And, uh, and I am going to talk about women. I'm going to tell you not only a fact, but uh, why the fact is and how it works. The fact is very simple. The fact is that most women, even though many of them would protest this and argue it, most women are drawn to strong, confident, ambitious men. That's not the same as saying that women are drawn to loutish arrogance and, and, uh, and uh, floundering bullying. No, of course not. But most women are attracted 
to strong, confident, ambitious men, men who know what they're doing in the world, men who've got their lives worked out. And uh, something I've noticed, both in Jewish ministry and Christian ministry, uh, there are certain groups of Jews, Bible-believing, committed, serious Jews, who um, are, are deeply committed to spreading the faith. And they'll go out to locations that uh, may have only a small population of Jews but no services at all and no availability of kosher food, etc. And a young couple will go out, leaving behind their families, and uh, set up locations, you know, in, in really every corner of the world. And it's really rather remarkable. Uh, they are uh, unbelievably dedicated, and in this sense, very similar to the many Christian friends I have, who, uh, again, a, a couple, you sometimes newly married, sets out to start a, uh, a new congregation, to plant a church, to engage in ministry. And here is something that I have noticed, and that is well above average. Like this is way beyond just the uh, what would might be the statistical probabilities. Way beyond on both the, the Jewish and the Christian side, these pastors and rabbis seem to have the most extraordinary wives. They are beautiful. They are put-together women. They're competent women. And side by side with their husbands, as full, full, 100% partners, uh, the two of them build up a presence. As I say, whether it is a, uh, uh, a synagogue or whether it's a church. And years ago, I found myself already asking myself this, why is it that these men seem to attract incredible women? And the answer is very simple. They may not be going to make a whole lot of money in their lives, but they won't be hungry. They'll be all right, and their families will be fine. They, they're not going to be spectacularly rich. They're not going to be rich at all, but they are going to do just fine. So how do they end up attracting such magnificent women? And the answer is because they are strong, they are confident, they are ambitious, and they know what they're doing in life. They know what their purpose is. They know what they're trying to build. And any man in any field like that stands an above-average chance of attracting an above-average woman. So why am I telling you all of this? Uh, because one of the things that uh, I come across a great deal both in letters that come to me at our website, we get a lot of letters and I do read them all, is um, the, the letter that is so common that I can almost uh, write the text. It's so standardized. And that is men asking me, why should they get married? After all, 50% of marriages are going to end in divorce. They've got a one in two chance of being divorced. And divorce wipes them out financially, and they lose their children in custody battles, and they just, they just can't see any point in getting married. Not only that, and this, this is a, a regular feature as well, and uh, I've written about this in um, our thought tools. And again, just a, uh, a little plug here. If you're not receiving the weekly emailings from us, why don't you go and subscribe on our website and make sure you do because if these topics interest you in any way at all then I do put out a lot of information there including information that I don't do on the show itself so try and uh, make sure you get thought tools and you can subscribe quite easily on our website also the website you can go back and read you know many 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 earlier issues of uh, thought tools that have that have passed by uh, but I've spoken about this and written about this uh, that men, men say not only uh, do they stand a, a high chance of getting divorced and divorce will wipe them out but even before that time they they marry uh, these wives who start running their lives 
um, who um, make them feel that they have to beg for physical connection and that somehow uh, the, the, the joys of marital life never actually materialize for them. So they see little reason for getting married. Some of the men who write to me are already married and bemoaning the circumstances in which they're living and saying had they only known what this was going to be like, they never would have got married. There's a lot of this negativity, and uh, a lot of the letters speak about the fact that uh, they don't want to uh, marry because uh, of the, the factors I've already mentioned. Also, that women are bossy and women are pushy and winny, w- women are money-grabbing, and uh, just generally a, uh, an incredibly negative take on women in general. Uh, first of all, I just want to clarify that the marriage failure rate is not 50%. This was a lie that I think was originally perpetrated by the New York Times uh, when they started listing together all marriages, first marriages, second marriages, third marriages. And it is true that when taken together, all of the marriages, in other words, look at every marriage that occurred in, uh, you know, shall we say, uh, 2014, and uh, uh, by 2018, it was clear that a very high proportion of them were either divorced or going to be divorced, heading in that direction. So you should be aware that that is one of these misleading statistics. It is true that divorce rates for second marriages are much higher than for first marriages, which makes sense when you think about it, right? Uh, you are likely to be older, more set in your ways, less able to adjust to this entirely new reality of combining your life with somebody else's. Uh, Secondly, having done something once, doing it a second time is a little easier. Um, The thought of divorce is horrifying, unless you've done it twice already, in which case a third time you think, you know, I've been through this already, I can do it again. So not surprisingly, divorce rates for second marriages are higher. Divorce rates for third marriages are still higher. And so when you lump them all together, you do get a 50% rate. However, the success rate for first marriages is well over 70%, according to some numbers, over 80%. So um, it's first marriages do very well for people to say automatically, well, I stand a 50% chance of a divorce. Not true. Not true at all. Anyway, um, in addition to that, what I feel I have to devote some time to today is explaining that feminism, with all its drawbacks and with all its flaws, uh, with all the unhappiness it has brought to women and men, feminism, my friends, is largely a creation of men. Yes, all you guys out there complaining bitterly about what women are like, can thank the men before you for making them that way. What on earth am I talking about? Why is it, why is it, why is it men's fault that women have become uh, the, the feminist, um, unpleasant uh, model and, and image that uh, popular culture shows them to be? And this is done by men? Sure it is. And I will explain exactly what I mean as we come back, right? The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, at rabbidaniellappin.com, you can not only take a look at a resource that uh, is probably a really good idea for anybody contemplating marriage for young people looking at a first marriage, and this is primarily for people uh, in a dating situation or a courting situation. The book is called Hands Off, This May Be Love, and it is a very compelling and cogent and persuasive argument for not touching the woman you're dating. That's right. That's right. I know it sounds shocking. But the, the argument is a good one, and uh, if you think about it, uh, you can probably come up with some of them yourselves. But to underestimate the power of sex, to change your thinking, to change your mind, 
uh, during the dating process is to voluntarily admit to one of the most important decisions you're likely to make in your life, uh, considerations that remove your ability to think clearly and diminish your capacity to exert logic and rationality to the decision you have to make. Anyway, it's a fascinating book, and if you know people who are on the threshold of getting into the uh, the dating, courting, getting married process, uh, Hands Off This May Be Love is a really useful book. And while you're at RabbiDanielAppen.com, please make sure that you do get yourself on the subscription list for Thought Tools so that uh, you can get a better sense of some of the deeper implications of the things we discuss right here. This is the show that I am taping just before uh, Christmas 2018, and so I take this opportunity of wishing all you Christian listeners a very joyful and uplifting Christmas as you contemplate a blessed, prosperous, and happy year ahead. I hope you're going to get to be able to spend Christmas with loved ones and uh, that it will be a, a very special heartwarming time, a time that will rejuvenate you and refresh you and prepare you for a spurt of creativity as you face the, the struggles and challenges of life ahead. Those struggles and challenges whose overcoming brings real happiness in all of our lives. Now, uh, I want to touch on a scientific principle because science is very important. Science helps us measure and observe how the world really works on a physical level. And uh, Susan Lappin always warns me that when I discuss scientific uh, topics, I run the risk of losing all the female listeners to this show. And all I can say is I disagree with her. I think my wife is entirely wrong on that. Uh, I, I simply do not accept that women listeners turn off on science. Now, I do understand and accept that uh, the percentage of women who choose uh, study and, uh, and careers in the science and the technology and the engineering and the math fields, I understand that that's far lower than the number of men who do so. Furthermore, I do not believe that this is because of acculturation or sexism or anti-womanism or these fields trying to keep women out. I don't accept anything of that at all. I think that uh, sexes are different from one another and that the natural interests of men and women are different from one another. Uh, exceptions, obviously, it goes without saying. I myself uh, know several rocket scientists, literally, uh, who are women. One is married to a nephew of mine, and so I'm I'm not unfamiliar with that. But in general, that having said, that having been said, uh, I would like to talk about a scientific principle that, to begin with, was uh, attributed to uh, I think Aristotle. <laughs> it goes back a long time. At any rate, uh, it's, not, it's not a uh, difficult concept to grasp at all. But the way it's traditionally articulated is nature abhors a vacuum. Okay, And what is a vacuum? Well, a vacuum is uh, anywhere where there is nothing. It's a space in which there's absolutely nothing there. Not even air, no gas, no nothing. Uh, by the way, space is a vacuum. Most of the distance between the Earth and the Moon, most of the difference between uh, the Earth and the Sun, is empty. It's, it's pure space. And nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, it's, it's pure vacuum is what I meant to say. Nature abhors a vacuum. What do I mean by this? Well, 
Think for a moment of how a drinking straw works. By the way, you all know about the, the silly lie that 20 million straws are thrown into the ocean every day from America. Again, complete and utter nonsense. Uh, a number pulled out of thin air. And as a result of this, foolish places have uh, started limiting the number of straws that they allow clients or customers at the restaurant to have. Anyway, all of that is nonsense. But uh, uh, I like straws, I use straws, and I enjoy the, the plastic straws because they don't dissolve and mess and, and fail during a long drink. Uh, anyway, how does the straw work? You put it to your lips, and before you do anything at all, in the straw you will notice that the level of the liquid is the same as the level in the glass. Nothing's happened. As you insert the straw the liquid in the straw rises to the same level as the, the, the level in the glass. Then you put your lips to the straw and you start sucking on it. When that happens, what happens is you are creating a vacuum in the uh, column in the straw. And when that vacuum becomes empty enough, uh, something rushes in because nature abhors a vacuum. And what rushes in? Well, there is air pressure pushing on the liquid in your glass, and normally there's nowhere for it to go, in the same way that, you know, there's air pressure pushing down the water in a swimming pool, and you're oblivious of that. You don't know about it at all. If, uh, if there was no gravity and no air pressure, it would be very difficult to keep water in the pool. It would float out of the pool and float around, as the, the now famous pictures we're accustomed to seeing of people in space stations uh, where there is no gravity. But uh, talking just about air pressure, not gravity, the uh, liquid is forced up the straw. You don't suck it up the straw. All you do is create a vacuum, and the air pressure then pushes the liquid because nature hates leaving a vacuum, and things rush in to fill it. Quick question. If that's the case, why doesn't the air, there's about four or five miles of air uh, atmosphere surrounding our Earth, why doesn't it rush off to the vacuum of space? And the answer is obvious, that the, the planet's gravity attraction pulls on each molecule of air, keeping it close to Earth, preventing it from escaping into space. But uh, vacuums tend to want to be filled. And... Um, this is one of these beautiful scientific rules that has a very clear and obvious human uh, real-life equivalent. What happens if you have weak leadership in government? Well, nature abhors a vacuum, and if there's a vacuum of leadership, then you get a tremendous rise in bureaucratic power. In other words, if elected representatives renege on their responsibility to control the bureaucracies, which has been happening for a few decades now already. Congress basically abandons its responsibility to supervise the various uh, offices of government, whether it's the EPA or the Energy Department or the Education Department. All of these huge bureaucracies that are created by the federal government, in the absence of leadership, they tend to assume leadership, and the colossal increase in rules and regulations that have over the last few decades stifled so much of life in America, uh, business as well as other areas, is a natural result of nature abhors a vacuum. Create a power vacuum, and other people will seize the power rushing in there. Uh, this is true in business as well, right? Exactly the same thing, where if you do not have a strong and effective leadership at the top, you have a vacuum. There's a leadership vacuum, and not surprisingly, there will be a rush in to fill that vacuum, and it is generally going to be a, a chaotic sequence of events that follow, simply because the, uh, the quality of leadership that flows in as a result of a genuine leadership vacuum, is not necessarily what 
is in the best interests of the company long term, although it's very much in the best interests of those who seize the opportunity and rush in to fill the power vacuum. And so really one of the things that uh, leadership has to do, one of the many things that leadership, one of the responsibilities and obligations of leadership that are not often spoken about or not even often understood is that leadership needs to um, control the ambition of up-and-comers, making sure that is redirected for the benefit of everybody as opposed to um, uh, destructive coups. What is a coup? A coup is essentially something that happens when there's a power vacuum at the top. Anyway, back to women. What we see happening in America today is very simply uh, a power vacuum that began, yes, you're right. You know I always tell you everything started in the 60s. Well, yes, it was in the 60s that it began, and men started backing out of responsibility. Men started, well, men started reneging on their responsibility to be men. See, the normal process of any society is that you have to acculturate your boys to become men. You don't have to worry about the girls because girls generally are going to become young women automatically. That's what happens. But little boys do not become men automatically. This is one of the great challenges facing any society. How do you make this all work correctly? The problem, as I say, is, is not the women. The problem is the boys. If you do not educate them to become men, you don't acculturate them to be men, then they stay boys forever. And when they stay boys forever, then there is going to be a power vacuum. I know many people will say, so what? There shouldn't be a power vacuum. Power should be shared between men and women. Uh, that is a little bit like saying that um, power should be shared in the army between the commanders and the enlisted men. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the world really works. And you'll remember, I mentioned earlier, that the majority of women, by far and away most women, would rather be married to a man that they do look up to and respect, not a man who lets them do, <laughs> this is going to be disturbing to many people, but um, most women prefer being married to a man who holds the steering wheel, married to a man who takes responsibility for the direction of the marriage and the family and the home, a man who takes responsibility for the children, a man who takes responsibility for the finances, and in the same way, that the overwhelming majority of women are far happier riding in the passenger seat of the car than men would be happy in that position. It's one of the reasons that even after several decades of feminism, the overwhelming majority of cars that you will see in your morning commute that have a couple in them will have the man driving, not the woman driving. And so what happened is that men never emerged. It was Peter Pan time. And from the 60s, boys started remaining boys. How do we see this? Well, I'm going to explain it, and I'm also going to explain it in the context of some popular entertainment. You ready? But before I do that, let me remind you again of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. The resource I want to suggest you take a look at is called Hands Off, This May Be Love. It's a very powerful book. It's a short book. It's effective, and uh, the best thing is you can get it either in paper form at the website or you can get it on Kindle, right? If you're, if you're uh, somebody who likes doing your reading electronically, um, you know, perhaps you want to read on, on your commute or when you're traveling, whatever it is, download it on Amazon onto Kindle. The name of the book, Hands Off, This May Be Love. Um, I didn't write the book. I published the book. But um, it's called Hands Off, This May Be Love. 
and I think you will find it to be very useful indeed, particularly if you are raising children or playing a role in the education of grandchildren, or maybe you have a family member, who, man or woman, who's thinking of starting to date or court somebody who's thinking of marriage. Uh, this is truly an absolutely invaluable resource. This is one of those things where uh, I hear from people all the time, one of the most common letters, and by the way, you'll see this in the comment section of the thought tools on our website. People will often write and say, why didn't I know this stuff 30 years ago? Why didn't I know this at the time I was getting married? Why didn't I know this when I was beginning my career? I get that an awful lot of times. And this is one of those books that people would say, why didn't I know this back then? The book is called Hands Off, This May Be Love. And uh, go to the rabbi com or Amazon, and you'll be able to explore the book more thoroughly. Um, okay, I said I was going to give you some examples from popular culture, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. If you still uh, hear this show um, before Christmas, then know that I wish you a joyful and uplifting Christmas. And what we're talking about um, is men not playing the role of men. And uh, as a result of that, uh, women step into the breach, as they have to. Now, again, this doesn't work in an abstract world. This isn't a world of theory. Um, secular fundamentalists adopt the Marxist point of view that all of history is played out by struggles within race, gender, and economic class. And so it's not, oh, there's this great big group called women who did these things. No, there isn't such a thing. But what happened is something that played out in millions of individual interactions. It played out in millions of homes, in millions of marriages, in millions of dating interactions where men turned out not to be men, but to be boys. Now, I usually mention 1962, 63, as roughly the time uh, when things really seriously began to plummet downwards in the culture. Now, the reason I select that date is uh, for, for a variety of, of different proofs but one of them that is interesting, I think, is that the um, birth control tablet came onto the market at that period. And that was perhaps the first time that uh, men could now replace masculine honor and responsibility with um, simply, uh, did you remember to take your pill, honey? And so not surprisingly, the area that most effectively propelled boys into manhood was the area of sex. The idea that you take responsibility as a boy or as a man, not as a boy, but as a man, you take responsibility for a woman, you cherish her, you support her, you love her, you try and make her happy your whole life. That notion slipped away, and uh, the result was well. It's 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 shared. Everybody, uh, there's there's the the benefits accrued to both in sex. Both have the same responsibilities, and things started going downhill. I said I'd show you some examples from popular culture, and you know it's enough to make you weep sometimes. I do want to show you something that goes back to the sixties. And before I even go there, I just want to make certain that none of you are intimidated at all by the popular culture response to any time you look back, and you look back in uh, nostalgia. For instance, I think everybody knows that the poverty figures for black Americans 
in general and to in, 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 in relationship to the rest of America and the growth rates uh, were actually better before the civil rights movement began. Crime rates, illegitimacy rates, actually stable marriage rates were actually higher in black America than in white America up until 1963. So, uh, you know, I say that and immediately everybody wants to jump on me and say, oh, you're trying to bring back the bad old days. You're trying to turn back the clock of racism and slavery. So one has to be able to dismiss such foolishness. One, one can, like in any time right now, I can tell you that now is absolutely the best time to, to be alive, but it's also a very problematic time to be alive. Right? There are lots of reasons why this is a wonderful time to, to be getting married and having children. It's also a very challenging time, and I can point out the advantages of today and also the disadvantages. It doesn't mean I'm overlooking either or, or dismissing either of them. So it is, if I'm going to go back and look at the 60s, uh, there were pluses and there were minuses, obviously, but I'm focusing right now on the pluses because those were thrown out with the bathwater, and uh, the results have been to make not only women but men also very unhappy. Why? Well, because ultimately happiness for both a man and a woman is dependent on finding your other half, upon building a life together with someone of the opposite sex. Right? That's where happiness ultimately comes from if that marriage is conducted correctly. If not, then a marriage can become a hellhole. But Observing that reality doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with marriage, obviously. Okay, so with that, uh, with that having been said, let me um, go back and uh, share with you something from a show called The Gilmore Girls. Um, a very clever and capable uh, woman writer, Amy Sheridan Palladano, I think is her name. I haven't met her. But um, but she wrote the Gilmore Girls, and the, you know there's a good reason there was such an incredibly successful series during the 2000s. So uh, listen, if you would, to this brief little discussion. What happens is, uh, for those of you who may not be in the know, there is a single mom, um, Lorelai, whose daughter Rory is I don't know at this point about 16 or something like that. And uh, she's got a, an admirer, a young man who uh, seems to be quite a bright guy. Uh, works in, I think he works in the local supermarket. I'm, I'm not fully up to date on everything, but, uh, but that's, that's enough background. He walks into their home as Lorelai and her daughter Rory are watching television. What are they watching? They're watching the Donna Reed show. What's the Donna Reed show? Donna Reed is, uh, a, plays Donna Stone, who is married to her pediatrician husband, Alex Stone. They've got a son and a daughter. And this show ran 1958 to 1966, I think. So just the period we're talking about. And um, it is the home that everybody would have loved to have grown up in and been part of. A, a wise, powerful patient, strong, uh, loving father, uh, a beautiful mother who just takes care of her husband and of her children and finds deep fulfillment in that. And it's a home where the children are cherished. It's a home in which the couple grows in love. Um, it's, a, it, it's a home in a neighborhood where neighbors care for one another and where there is a serene predictability to life. Um, it's it's beautiful, and anybody who any normal man who goes back and looks at clips from the Donna Reed show, if he's got a shred of masculine normality in him, he will instantly fall in love with Mrs. Stone uh, on the Donna Reed show, and he it's just you know, and he'll say, look, it's it's, it's a show, it's unrealistic, it's impossible. Yes. Um, it is. There have to have been times where she lost her temper. There have got to be times where she didn't look beautiful and perfect in a great frock with high heels and a pearl necklace. 
Uh, there must have been times like that, right? This is a show, after all. But I think it was Oprah Winfrey who credited the show, and I, I may be wrong on this, but um, it, if not, it was then the the um, Leave It to Beaver show, which had strong similarities. But I'm thinking it was Oprah Winfrey who says uh, that seeing the show as a kid made her realize there was something else. There was the possibility of something worthwhile and terrific. And indeed, uh, it it serves that purpose. In other words, what your popular culture puts out there for consumption as the model um, is really uh, very, very significant. Don't say that you know, television just echoes reality. It doesn't. It plays a huge role in shaping it. And you might remember the horrible show of Married with Kids or Married with Children. I don't remember with Al Bundy. Uh, pretty much a dysfunctional marriage, and I, I never saw the humor in it, frankly. But um, but if that's put out as normal marriage, then it becomes more acceptable for every husband who watches that week after week after week to be disrespectful to his wife. And uh, this, however, is not what you saw on the Donna Reed show. So I'm going to um, play you the uh, just the scene I've been describing where the boyfriend comes in and uh, um, Lorelai and her daughter say, sit down, sit down. He says, what are you watching? And he says, the Donna Reed show. And, uh, and then I've, I've, I've left out a whole, part, a whole part of it, but the mother and daughter disparage Donna Reed in such tatty, unpleasant terms, really um, in witchy terms, uh, if you if you know the word I'm I'm trying to avoid saying, uh, there it is. You'll you'll hear it and uh, you'll see what it is I'm describing. Um, again, I always like reminding you to visit the website because that is the uh, the the raison d'être. What lies behind this show is the uh, resources you can obtain at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, in terms of anybody who is at that point in life, man or woman, thinking about preparing for a marriage and building a home uh, for real-life practical guidance in getting through the dating period, whether it's you or your children or your grandchildren or a nephew or a niece or friends of the family, uh, whatever it is, please read up about this resource called Hands Off This May Be Love. The idea, of course, is that uh, um, touching plays an enormous role in shaping your decisions. Uh, and again, obvious to anybody who's lived a few years understands that the ability for the ability of a young man or young and young woman to accurately evaluate their feelings about one another and their ability to weld a life together uh, is dramatically diminished the minute uh, sexual sensation is involved in that relationship. So it's called Hands Off. This may be love. You'll see it at rabbidaniellappin.com. You can read about it more than I can tell you about it right here. Hands Off. This may be love. And you can also go on Amazon and um, download it as a Kindle. So you can have it that way as well. Hands Off. This may be love. And uh, what I now want to do is play you for this, this little bit from the Gilmore Girls. isn't it? I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, written by Jewish Irving Berlin, and uh, really one of, one of the, the great Christmas songs. And there, there are many wonderful Christmas songs, are there not? And, uh, and you know, one really, <laughs> as you know, uh, nobody is less inclined to find anti-Semitism lurking under every bush than me. But how else do you explain that Christians get I'm dreaming of a white Christmas and this is what Jews get? Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay And when it's dried and ready, oh dreidel, we 
You see what I mean? I mean, really, what a contrast. That is, is really absolutely pathetic. Dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. But um, nonetheless, a, uh, a nice time of the year it certainly is. And uh, I wish you all, my Christian listeners, a, a wonderful, a merry Christmas and an uplifting Christmas with your friends and your families. Now, uh, as I promised, here comes a few seconds of uh, the, the Gilmore Girls talking about an earlier show. This episode of the Gilmore Girls, I think, first aired in 2001. And they're talking about a show that went off the air in 1966, although I think you can still see it on you know, some of the late-night uh, channels, I think, play some of these oldies. And if you've, I'm sure you've seen episodes of the Donna Reed show, but if you haven't, you probably should take a look at it uh, because I'm not saying that was normality, but I'm saying it was aspirational. People saw that that's what one aims at in creating a family. And I've got to tell you, there's a world of difference going to be between a boy watching the Donna Reed show as he grows up and a boy watching some of the slacker movies today. Boy grows up seeing movies about, uh, well, all the movies about young men today. And uh, to, to not realize the incredibly powerful impact that popular entertainment has on people is to miss what has happened in America over the last 50 years. So uh, let's listen now to um, uh, the Gilmore Girls. Hey. Hey. Sit, you're missing it. What are we watching? The incomparable Donna Reed show. So, who's Donna Reed? What? You don't know who Donna Reed is? The quintessential 50s mom with the perfect 50s family? Never without a smile and high heels? Hair that if you hit it with a hammer would crack? So it's a show? It's a lifestyle. It's a religion. So what's this one about? Uh, this one is actually quite filled with intrigue. The husband, Alex, comes home late for dinner, and he didn't call. Might as well kick the dog, too. Huh. Oh, oh, look, she's making donuts. <laughs> You're not even listening to the dialogue. Ours is better. I don't know. It all seems kind of nice to me. What does? Well, you know, families hanging together. I mean, a, a wife cooking dinner for her husband. And look, she seems really happy. See what I mean? Uh, the, the, the vituperation of the two girls talking about Donna Reed. And I, I cut out a whole part of it just because of the interest of time. Uh, but the real thing I wanted you to hear was the plaintiveness. I, I don't know the details, uh, and I'm sorry, I just I didn't have the time to check up on it. This boy, Dean, who sounds so plaintive when he thinks, oh, you know what, that's not so bad, That, that that's kind of nice. I don't know what his home background is and, and what he grew up in, I'm not sure. But I thought it was incredibly brave of the, the writers and the creators of this show to do an episode like this where the girls are jumping all over the, the Donna Reed model, and it's this young man saying, you know what, that, that wasn't so terrible. And then um, I haven't actually seen this part of it, but later in that Gilmore Girls show, uh, the daughter dresses up like Donna Reed for her boyfriend. And uh, I, don't, I don't quite know how, how that plays out. It doesn't matter for now. But what's interesting is that he really, um, it meant something to him. And he was made to realize, and he says, you know, I feel very unpopular now. Uh, he realized that this isn't what, what people are going for, but nonetheless, there it is. Now, one of the truly great American novels is a book by John Steinbeck called East of Eden. And... Um, in the Steinbeck Museum in Salinas, California, uh, is a wooden box that John Steinbeck carved himself in which to submit the manuscript to his publisher. And there are pictures available of the box, and they're interesting because he beautifully carved the words East of Eden on the box, and then beneath that carved very clearly and very accurately, is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is timshol, and it shows up twice uh, in this context 
in the first four chapters of Genesis. Okay, so the book East of Eden gets its name from Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. And Cain went out from before the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod to the east of Eden. And that was the title of the book. The whole novel revolves around the meaning of something that God said to Cain uh, in verse 7 of chapter 4 of Genesis. Um, and uh, uh, if you uh, succeed, uh, sin may crouch, sin will crouch at the door and it will seek you out, but uh, you will have the capacity to rule over sin. And then Cain nonetheless goes ahead and murders his brother Abel. But that word, and you will rule, you have the, the ability to rule over sin, is at the heart of Western notions of morality, right? In other words, nobody can say, my nature made me do it, or somebody else made me do it. If you commit a murder, then you did it, and you have to bear the responsibility for it, whatever it is. In other words, the very, very powerful thing that Steinbeck puts his finger on, a crucial verse which God says to Cain, you know what, there's always going to be sin out there. It's always going to be attractive. It's going to be tempting, but you, I've given you the ability to rule over it. Okay, fine. Now, in a totally different context, a chapter earlier, we get that word rule again. And this is in chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, Unto the woman he said, I will multiply the of childbirth, in sorrow will bring forth children. You will desire your husband that rules over you. And we're back at that word, Tim Shaw. So, used twice. Now, the point is that this is a, a thoroughly incorrect translation. It doesn't mean rule. In Hebrew, there are two words for ruling. One word is sholet, which means to rule uh, with power and force at the point of a gun or with the threat of prison. Uh, it's the, the ruling that the governments do or that kings do or used to do. And... Uh, it's the, the ruling that, uh, that anybody who employs force or the threat of force over somebody else does. That word is not the word used in Genesis. It doesn't even show up in Genesis. The word that is used is this word timshol. And um, this word means to influence somebody, to, to bring compliance from somebody else through willpower and vision and persuasiveness. In other words, uh, as, um, as I've often noted, Ayn Rand pointed out that the two ways of making somebody do what you want them to do is with a gun and with money. So she's wrong because there's really a third way. Uh, the third way is through sheer force of, of will and vision uh, where... Uh, and I, I, I gave an example when I wrote about this in the Thought Tool. Um, I was at a charity banquet a little while ago, and uh, I, I, you know, I supported the cause, and I always have supported the cause, but I gave a larger-than-expected donation, and not, not because anybody uh, called on me and said, Rabbi Lappin, what are you giving? And I was embarrassed. No, it didn't happen like that. Uh, there was no calling out. There was no uh, shaming anybody who wasn't giving enough. It was, it was all just completely uh, voluntary and private. And I, I found myself giving more than I had planned to give when I came there. Reason? I was forced to do it by everyone else in the room. How? There was such an outpouring of generosity. And I saw people giving who had less than I have. And we're giving very generously, and I, I just, I, I, you know, what? I'm, I'm, I'm with them. I'm, I'm, I, count me in. And I thought, hey, this is a good example. Nobody was pointing a gun at me. Nobody was going to embarrass me. Uh, nobody uh, was offering me money to give. This was a very simple thing. I was ruled over. I was ruled or influenced or impacted uh, by the pre the the behavior of other people. 
And so it's often like that where we're inspired to do things. Okay, now we're back to husband and wife. What the text actually says is that God said to Eve, and you will, you will always desire a husband who can rule over thee. But the word rule meaning strong, not forceful, not, not brutish, not tyrannical, not uh, abusive, but basically back to the Donna Reed marriage model, which, by the way, uh, is played out, you know, millions of times in, in fine American families right now, right, right today, and in countries all around the world. We, we, have, we have very – it's exciting for me, but the pins in my map are, are spreading dramatically – and we have listeners all over. And I just recently got a letter from somebody who said, please don't only talk about America. And you know, you're absolutely right. So uh, this, this point is, is valid around the world. There are marriages that uh, are wonderful marriages. But in general, always because the woman feels f- fulfilled, and I'm using a word specifically here, surrendering herself to a man worthy of her love. Okay, you okay with that? That's the key thing. She's looking up to him. But what happens in, in all kinds of interactions, dating, courting, living together, uh, cohabiting, marrying, where the man does not, is not like this, where he's an overgrown boy, doesn't take responsibility for the family's finances, doesn't take responsibility for the discipline and behavior of the couple's children. Uh, at this point, the woman becomes resentful. She does. And she says, this, this wasn't the deal. I'm not attracted to this man because I'm attracted to the man who can rule me. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, it's, it's, it's very dif- difficult to understand, I know. But uh, what happened is that um, the Donna Reed show went off the air in 66. Why? Because it was a time where boys were not turning into men. And so the show began to be anachronistic. You know, people would look at it and say, oh, this is not really realistic anymore. For the previous uh, eight years that the show ran, nobody said that then. People saw it as an aspirational thing. This is a nice marriage. I'm not sure it's realistic. I can't be like that all the time. You know, this Dr. Stone never gets angry with his kids. He's always, and everything works smoothly and beautifully. Okay, not like that in the real world. But at least I get an idea of what a marriage could be like. Well, that's all gone. And so over the ensuing decades, as boys stayed boys, women did what women have always done throughout history and managed, made sure that they still were able to take care of their children. And, uh, but at the same time, there was a resentfulness of the boys they found themselves involved with, certainly not powerfully attracted to, because they weren't men anymore. They were merely boys. And little by little, this morphed into the feminism we know of today with all its hostility and its anger and its excesses and its craziness. But I got to tell you, from what I understand, goes on at most university campuses, not religious colleges in America, but most university campuses in America, uh, I'd be shocked for women not to come out of that experience hating men. I, I get it because the men are not men, they're, they're boys, and they are, are, are treating women horribly. And, uh, and that carried on into the boys then graduate and go into uh, their workplace, where they continued treating women abominably as boys, not as men. A boy uses and abuses a woman, feeling nothing. A man loves, protects, supports, cherishes a woman. A boy seeks sexual gratification from a woman. A man seeks to give gratification. A man seeks to devote his life to making his wife happy. That's the difference, and it's a huge difference. Uh, That's as far as we're going to go today, uh, bringing us to the end of today's show. 
Again, wishing you a, uh, a wonderful Christmas. I hope you'll be spending it with friends and family. I also would like you to take a look at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, see if you'd like to be on the mailing list for any of our weekly mailings, which I, I think uh, bring real value in terms of uh, strategies and techniques for life. Uh, and also take a look at the book I'm recommending to you, Hands Off, This May Be Love. And it's available on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. You can read more about it there, see if it uh, is something that you or somebody in your orbit of influence could use. And uh, you can also look and read more about it at uh, on Amazon. Uh, you, hands off, this may be love. And that means that uh, we are at the end of today's show. Uh, I want to wish you a... Uh, uh, a week of, of really good times with your family, with your friends, uh, with your faith, and with your finances, for sure. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.